Hello, friends. You're listening to episode 17 of Keep It Real with Rachel Sinclair. I'm your host, Rachel Sinclair, and today I have an incredibly special guest who will fill your heart with hope. Robert J. Morgan is the author of over 35 books with a total of over 5 million copies sold. One of his best-selling books, The Red Sea Rules, 10 God-Given Strategies for Difficult Times, has been a top-selling book for years. I can't even describe how this book has helped me and my family through hard times. It is truly incredible. In this crazy season that our world is in, I hope you will be encouraged and uplifted after hearing this conversation with Robert J. Morgan. Here we go. Thank you for coming on today, but also just thank you for your work as a pastor, as an author. Um, as I said, specifically the book um, Red Sea Rules has meant so much to me and my family. We have passed out copies. We have bought the, the book for other people. And at one point, my dad even had the list of the 10 rules. He had that as his screensaver on his phone so that every time he looked down, he would be reminded of those truths. So um, it's just really an honor to be able to talk with you today. Well, I'm so glad we've had a lot of uh, people that have uh, seemed to have appreciated those uh, little uh, books, and so I'm I'm very thankful for it. Yes. Well, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Obviously, you're an author and a pastor, but um, kind of tell us about yourself. Well, yes. Um, I was raised and grew up in the Appalachian Mountains and the town of Elizabethton, Tennessee, which is in between the Smokies and the Blue Ridge, a very rugged, beautiful area right along the Appalachian Trail. And my parents were school teachers, and um, my sister came along after me. So we were a family of four. And then um, when I was 19, I moved away to college to go to Columbia International University. And that's where I met Katrina, uh, who later became my wife. Mm. Uh, I graduated from there, went to Wheaton uh, to graduate school for studies. And then after I graduated from there, Katrina and I were married, and we began pastoring up in the mountains of East Tennessee in Greenville in a little uh, beautiful stone church with a cemetery beside it. Uh, way out in the country, and we were there for a little over two years, and then we moved to Nashville, um, and this is where uh, I've lived since 1980. We moved on January the 1st of 1980. Uh, We still actually have our home uh, that my parents had up in uh, uh, East Tennessee, so occasionally I'm able to go up there, I hope to, next week. Oh. But uh, for the most part, I'm here in in Nashville, um, and I've been pastoring or on the staff of the same church now for um, 41 years. My wife, Katrina, passed away last September. Um, no, it was November, last November. Uh, she battled multiple sclerosis for many years. Um, and so, um, uh, so I'm barreling on uh, by myself, but I have grandchildren living with me, so oh. the house is always full, and and um, it always seems like that that we have a lot to do. So, yes. uh, so I look back with a great deal of gratitude mm. for the way the Lord has led me. Yes, well, I'm 
so sorry to hear that about Katrina. I know she just meant the world to you and to your family. And um, I can only imagine how hard that is. But um, like you said, uh, what a blessing to have family there too, to, you know, work through it together. That's a blessing. Definitely. Well, we, we don't uh, we don't get out of uh, life without going through difficult times. And uh, um, we were, I was a caregiver for many years. Uh, her condition got worse and worse, um, but we uh, never did let it stop us or uh, we never let it control our, our attitudes or our moods. We just uh, tried to stay cheerful every day. Um, but then she began getting infections that um, we couldn't control, the doctors couldn't control. And this is what happens with uh, someone that often has a neurological disease, and and finally she succumbed to those um, infections. But we were all around her, um, and we uh, uh, sang around her bed and prayed around her bed, and and, uh, uh, and it was you know a very tender family time. We had grandchildren sprawled all over the queen size bed or the king size bed that she was in mm-hmm. uh, for three or four days. They would just come and go and crawl up and be with her. And, uh, um, and so I, I look back at all of that with um, gratitude more than grief. Um, there's of course grief involved, but, uh, but when I think, uh, when I see, I have pictures of Katrina all over the house and I look at them and my primary feeling is much more gratitude than grief. Wow. What what allows you to be able to, like you said, the grief is there, but to to lean into the gratitude and let that be what carries you? How, how do you do that? Well, I think the main thing is it must be the Lord because uh, uh, it's, it's not anything that I... I mean, I didn't just sit down and say, I'm not going to grieve. I'm going to be grateful. It just seems to be a, a natural response. But, you know, everyone grieves differently. There is no way that it's got to be done. I've had people tell me that I wasn't grieving enough. And and uh, uh, and I'm certainly glad that they feel free enough to say that. But on the other hand, um, Bill Bright's wife, Vinette, talked about a woman whose husband died and this woman was so full of joy that her husband was in heaven that she said, I can hardly be sad about it. I just picture him there in heaven, and I know that I'm going to be with him again soon. And the thought of his being in heaven, which is far better, gives me so much joy that I have to work hard to grieve about that. And um, and there is something to be said in that attitude. Um you know, the, the remarkable thing is that the Apostle Paul said that it is far better to die and to be with the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to uh, go right now. I mean, right. when he said that, he said, I, I don't know what I want to do, uh, but he said, I think that I'm going to stay here and serve you a little bit more. He said that in Philippians chapter 1. But I think the more our minds are on heaven— um, the less we cling to things on earth. And it has an effect on our emotions and on our attitudes. 
Absolutely. I, I think of the verse where it says, we do not grieve as unbelievers. You know, we, we grieve with hope in a way because we, we realize our, our calling is greater. Our purpose is eternal. And it, this is not the end. Um, that's, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. Um, well, you know, as, as we mentioned before, the, one of your most popular books is Red Sea Rules. And this is always applicable, but I think, especially at this time in history, it seems even more just incredibly relevant because while we all go through hard times individually over the course of our lives, this feels like the whole world is going through a difficult time and everyone is looking for hope. Um, so I think even though this book was written several years ago, or um, when when did, was the first version published? Do you remember? Well, it was, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it, it was published over 20 years ago. Over 20 years ago, uh, and, okay. And the way that it became um, popular is I dedicated it to my wife, Katrina. So when you open it up, it says, to Katrina. And right after the book came out was when Hurricane Katrina struck. And people uh, saw that book and opened it, and they thought it had been written especially for Hurricane Katrina victims. And it was spread far and wide, and that's one of the reasons why uh, it became popular on the front end, which has been sustained all through these years. Um, My wife, Katrina, by the way, said that during that hurricane, she said, my name has never been so called in prayer as it is now. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> People from all over were lifting that name. <laughs> wow, so that is so been, interesting. It's been around a long time, yeah. Yes. It's been around a long time, but but it still is um, meeting a need. And um, we've gone over half a million copies mm. and... You know, if the Lord wills, we'll keep right on going with it. I, there's so much over which I don't have any control when it comes to circulation and and publicity. We do what we can, but our our great desire is just that it continues to be passed from person to person, and and, uh, and that it be used by the Lord. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration for the book and why you think it hits home with so many people? I was leading a trip to Israel, I think it was in 1999, um, or 1998, one of those two. And I I had a problem in my own life and relationships that uh, I was very troubled about. And we left Israel, I guess I was tired anyway, and we spent a day or two in Athens. And then we got up early in the morning in Athens, Greece, and went to the uh, airport. And when I boarded the flight, there was no one sitting beside me and I had a window seat and it was early. And I've always had my morning devotions. I think that that is one of the most, that is the most critical habit, um, in the, in the Christian experience is a daily time when we meet with the Lord in Bible study and prayer. And, um, and for me, it's in the morning. So uh, as soon as the plane took off, I lowered my tray table. And my reading that day, uh, I'd been reading through the book of Exodus, and I came to chapter 14, which is the chapter of the waters of the Red Sea parting for the Israelites. 
And as I was just reading in that chapter and burdened about my problem, it's as though the Lord Jesus came down the aisle and sat in that empty seat beside me and said, now I want to show you some things in this chapter. And somewhere I've still got the uh, yellow pad that I made my original notes on. I've got to go through my files and find it. But I couldn't write down fast enough Mm -hmm. to write down the insights that came to me uh, beginning with verse 1 of that wonderful chapter, Exodus 14. And uh, I wrote, just wrote and wrote and wrote on that flight. Uh, and I thought this was just the Lord really. Is, I've seldom had so such a um, visceral experience in Bible study. Um, so I came home and I put those principles into practice. And uh, then I preached a series of sermons based on that. We call the series, God Will Make a Way. This was probably in about the year 2000. And there was a song that was popular, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. Yes, he works in ways we, we cannot, cannot see. see. Yes. Yeah. I love so that So that was our theme song. Um, and so I preached that series of sermons. And then, you know, I, I live here in Nashville where my publisher is, and so uh, which is HarperCollins, Thomas Nelson. And so we just hammered it into that little book, uh, never dreaming that it would um, have the longevity uh, and the tenure that it's had. So that's how it came about. It was as simple as that. Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that it's so powerful is that it is easy to digest in that it's of course, you can go deep into Bible study and you can always learn new things. But at times, trusting God is simple. It's saying, yes, I will obey. I will pray. And the the book is just very unintimidating. It's welcoming. It's just saying, let's walk through step by step these you know, truths that you can just simple and repeat to yourself. I mean, like I said, my dad had all 10 on his uh, phone home screen so that he could just look down and, you know, snap his fingers and remember that those truths. And um, I think it's just, of of course, it has been a gift to so many people. So I love it. Well, and it's also an expensive, um, it's uh, it's just a cheap little book. The retail price has gone up to $11, but um, you can get it, you know, we sell it uh, in case slots for $5 a piece. And at my speaking engagements, we always sell it at $5 a piece. That's what we've done for years. And um, and it's always marked down on Amazon or, or at the local Christian bookstores, um, wherever people buy their books. Yes. Uh, so in other words, you can people can buy multiple copies and give it away without a great expenditure of money. Uh, so I think that also has helped. It's it just as uh, accessible and affordable for people. Absolutely. I have to ask, do you have a favorite rule? Because I do. And so I was curious if, if there's one in particular that, that means a lot to you personally. You know, it's uh, they change around. The rule that says take the next logical step by faith mm. to me is... Um, that's been helpful, um, you know, since my wife passed away. Uh, you, you just can't stand still, uh, at least not for long. You've, you've got to go forward. You, uh, you have to do what comes next. 
And there's a tremendous power in just deciding I'm going to do what comes next. I may not know what the distant future holds, but I know what I can do today. Uh, I know what needs to be done today. And, uh, uh, and so for me, uh, especially with the um, quarantine and the house arrest that we're all under, uh, you know, you wake up and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? My speaking engagements are canceled, but I've got these obligations. And uh, so I just try to take the next logical step by faith. But ask me tomorrow and my answer may be different. <laughs> yes. What is yours? Mine is acknowledge your enemy, but keep your eyes on the Lord. And specifically, you state in the chapter, don't do the reverse. Don't acknowledge the Lord, but keep your eye on the enemy. And I say that because I am a, I'm a doer. I'm a fixer. I want to figure out a problem. And so I just, I know my personal tendency is to say, okay, I'm looking at, um, whether it's the enemy himself or just the situation, right? You know, uh, the, whatever scenario I'm going through, my tendency is to say, oh yeah, God is there. You know, I did my devotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay, look at the problem. Got to figure it out. What am I going to do? How am I going to stop it? And that's so tricky because it sounds like you are relying on the Lord. You know, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm including the Lord, but my eyes are focused on the problem. So that is mine, to acknowledge the enemy, but keep my eyes on the Lord. So <laughs> That principle is all the way through the Bible. For example, um, well, I, just so many verses are coming into my mind, but <laughs> In second in Second Corinthians chapter five, the apostle Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for our life and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Yes. I remember preaching on that, and I thought, what is he talking about? What are the unseen things that we could see when the Bible says, set your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen? What are those unseen things? Well, God the Father, he's invisible. God the Son is visible, I think, but not to us right now. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit is invisible. The angels are invisible. Heaven is not within our vision right now. But also the unfolding future fulfillment of all of God's promises. There are promises. We have the promises. We can see them now, but we're in the middle of our circumstances, and we don't yet see the fulfillment. So we walk by faith. We keep our eyes on those unseen realities. That has been tremendously encouraging to me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's also important not to totally disregard the enemy because that gets you in trouble too. You know, it's not that you just say, oh, I'm not going to worry about that or think about that at all. It's saying, okay, this is real. The enemy is real, but he doesn't win. He's not the most powerful God is, you know? So. Yes, we're realists. We're realists, but we're also optimists. Um, mm. And and really never pessimists. We're realists slash 
optimist because we understand the condition that things are in, but we also have the promises of God uh, to help us deal with them. And uh, you're exactly right. We can never ignore the enemy. We just don't want to become fixated on either the enemy or on the problems that tend to preoccupy us. Right. I like that together. We are realist and optimist. We can be both. That's that's a good takeaway. I like that. Well, another concept that you talk about in the book is leaving room for God and giving God time to work. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and why it's important, especially in today's world where everything is instantaneous and we want it now? <laughs> yes, I remember when I was very troubled. You know, I'm, um, I'll have to tell you, uh, Rachel, that I'm prone to anxiety. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and it's very easy for me to be uh, anxious and, and worried. But one night when I was very worried, I was reading in the book of Romans, chapter 12, and it says, Do not seek revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. And I saw that sentence, and I took my pen and underlined the, the, the words, Leave room for God. Now, what the verse is saying is that if we have been abused or offended or hurt or damaged in some way, and there's no way for us to make it right, we have to give it to God and let him be the one who seeks vengeance or who uh, makes everything right or who settles the score because he's a God of justice. Uh, We can't carry the frustration of it around all over the place. But the principle there is broader. Leave room for God. We can leave room for his grace. We can leave room for his power. We can leave room for him to work in ways we can't see. We can cast our cares upon the Lord and leave room for him to work. And Psalm 37 tells us to rest in the Lord and to wait on him. So waiting uh, really is a wonderful experience. Uh, we, we don't like to, to needlessly wait. Uh, nobody's more impatient than I am when I have to wait uh, and no line at the grocery store or in the doctor's office or in a traffic jam. But when it comes to living, we have our desire, and God has his fulfillment, Mm. and his timing is perfect. Our desire is now. He's going to bring things together in his perfect timing, and the period between our wanting and God's working is when we are waiting. And there is a sense in which we can enjoy that time. We just say, well... I've done what I can do now, and so I'm just going to lean back and relax and rest in God and wait on him and see what he will do. And so I think leaving room for God and waiting on him, there are some things that will be achieved only in our lives as we learn to do that. Mm. That is beautiful. And I have to retrain my brain to think of waiting as a good thing. In you know, just in my head, I associate if I'm waiting, that's bad. You know, that's not good. But it's, I mean, it is good to wait on the Lord. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be totally wrong. But I believe in different translations of the Bible, the word wait and the word to hope for 
can be interchanged. Is that correct? Or they have similar meaning? Yes. Yeah. In Isaiah chapter 40, some of the translations will say, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And other translations say, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Uh, You know, Rachel, we are rushing too much. And that includes me. If it hadn't been for this uh, quarantine, I don't know what I would have done. I was overbooked. Uh, I had uh, speaking engagements, um, three different overseas trips, and about a dozen domestic trips while I was trying to finish the deadline of the book. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking. And uh, sometimes I think, Lord, you let this quarantine to happen just because you knew (laughs) I was about to go crazy. Um, Yes. Well, I'm I'm sure that isn't true, but I'm just saying that we are all too busy. We are rushing all the time. And so in a therapeutic way, to wait on the Lord, to take a deep breath and say, well, this is going to unfold in God's timing, and I'm just going to uh, sit here and, and watch it unfold. Now, if he wants me to do something, if I need to take a step, if I need to be more proactive, then I'm, I'm here ready and willing, but there's a lot of things I can't do, so I'm just going to wait on him. That's not a bad experience for us to have. That's so true. It's, it's good, in fact. <laughs> it's good to wait, wait on him. That's, that's wonderful. Well, I know that in, in many of your writings, I mean, you know your history of Christian leaders, of different writers. I'm always very impressed and inspired by the different stories that I hear. And I think that's so important for us to remember the people who have gone before us, you know, the believers who have gone through hard times and, you know, have glorified the Lord. So I, I just think that's really unique about your writing. And I wanted to ask, why why do you love these stories? Where does this appreciation for the history come from? And um, why is it important to share those stories? Well, let me see how to answer that. There's two two reasons, I think. One is that if we don't have any anchors in our lives, then we're just going to drift in the wrong directions as we go into the future. Uh, we have a generation right now, and I want to, you know, isolate millennials, where, where I think it's especially true I have millennial grandchildren who live with me. So, so, uh, so I watch this, but I see it in, in other age groups, too. They are growing up without any sense of context. Uh, for example, when, when I was a young man, Katrina and I were first married. We would take a trip and we'd pull out the road maps and select the route, you know, on those big fold-out maps that you got at the gas stations. And we would see the route we were taking, but we would know, you know, where the neighboring cities were in the states, and, and there'd be some geographical context. Now we just put on our GPS and we follow that line and we have no idea where we are. Uh, There is no geographical context. Uh, In a lot of churches, pastors will preach textual sermons. They'll just select the verse here and select the verse there and, and weave some points out of that verse. And there is no studying of the biblical context for it. Um, I just think that the, People are are losing their sense of context. And without knowing our history, without knowing where we came from, 
and how the faith was transmitted down to us and how we got our Bibles and, and, and the heroes, one generation after another, that brought us uh, to faith in Christ, then we just are lost. We don't have any anchoring to our faith. We don't have any context for living out the Christian life. We've lost the lessons of everyone who came before us. So I love studying history and Christian history and reading some of the older books for that reason. The second reason, Rachel, is it just is interesting. Uh, when I write books or when I illustrate sermons, uh, I don't want all of my illustrations to be from the 1800s or from D.L. Moody or Charles <laughs> Spurgeon or J. Hudson Taylor, but to select occasionally a story from history and to tell that story, um, I just find that people, uh, young people, uh, they'll they'll drink that up. It's it's very interesting. Um, so you know, if you have the right story from missionary Lottie Moon or uh, or maybe Martin Luther, and uh, and you can tell it well then it's just as relevant as any illustration you could get out of the Atlantic magazine or the Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal or, or anywhere else. Uh, and it's just as entertaining and more so. But anyway, those are the two reasons why I like um, weaving uh, historical incidents into uh, to what I'm doing. We need the context. And also, the stories are just entertaining. They're very interesting and inspiring. Definitely. This is probably a hard question for you, but do you have a favorite or any favorite, um, specifically biographies, of people that you would recommend for reading? Are you talking about biographies or or books? Biographies, specifically. You know, this one isn't very old, obviously, but everybody ought to read Billy Graham's autobiography, uh, just as I am. it is a wonderful book. Uh, I'm just a tremendous fan of Billy Graham. And there's a lot of biographies out about him, but uh, his own memoirs, just as I am, are uh, absolutely um, uh, fascinating. Uh, yes. and, and, you know, that's recent history. Many of us can, can remember that. Uh, the biography of uh, presidential biographies and uh, David McCullough's biography of Harry Truman um, is really one of the best. And there's also a book um, by Stephen Mansfield about Lincoln called Lincoln's Battle with God that uh, is just a fascinating uh, story. And there's a, a, a founding father that isn't so very well known. His name is Benjamin Rush, and uh, uh, a good biography of Benjamin Rush uh, should be, you know, on everybody's table. He was a great Christian uh, man who's called the father of medicine in the United States. Wow. And um, um, the, the father of medicine, the father of, uh, um, um, in some ways, the public schools. Uh, so I like uh, reading about Benjamin Rush. I, biographies of uh, Christians, there's a wonderful biography of A.W. Tozer by a man named Snyder uh, that was very enjoyable for me to read. I have to be careful I'm reading 
biographies all the time and <laughs> and not other things. I and love I biographies, biographies too. That's, that's why I say I, I love a biography. <laughs> so, Well, I just finished a book called um, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. And so I was reading a lot of American history um, to study uh, for that. And I was astounded at the, uh, and I should have known this better than I did, but the role the Bible played in the establishing of the United States of America is so critical that without the Bible, I don't think there would have been a United States of America. Wow. And uh, the United States came into existence, literally, between two revivals of biblical proportions, which we call the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. And the First Great Awakening paved the way and gave unity to the colonies um, and, uh, and a love for liberty that led to the Declaration of Independence. And then the Second Great Awakening solidified the nation's morality in a Judeo-Christian way, uh, so that, that the influence of that in some ways is still going on to our uh, in, in our time today, although it's it's beginning to be lost. But um, 100 Bible verses that made America. Um, there's just 100 very interesting stories in that book um, yes. from American history, but it's all connected with what God has sought to do in our nation. Wow. Well, you have given us great reading suggestions for this quarantine time. i want to read them all now. So <laughs> thank you for sharing that. That's that's wonderful. Well, the last Red Sea rule in the book is to praise God, which is something that we too easily forget to do, but that is so important and just enriching, you know, in our in our walk with Christ. So what what are some practical ways that we can praise God, especially during the season when when sometimes it's hard and life doesn't look normal. How can we, how can we do that in our everyday lives? Well, that brings up another uh, passion uh, that I'll slip in here that is very important to me, and that's the heritage of the great hymns of the faith. Mm. Um, I've written a series of songs called Then Sings My Soul on the story behind the hymns. And, uh, you know, Rachel, I love the new music. So we sing a lot of contemporary Christian music in our church. Uh, I've always been a proponent and a fan of it. Um, but it does trouble me that some churches and a lot of Christians now are only singing the newer songs, and the newer songs don't stay around very long. Uh, for example, I love uh, Our God is an Awesome God. Uh, but that's a song that we sang a lot a couple of years ago, and it's seldom heard anymore. And the songs that a lot of churches are singing right now have a very limited lifespan. There's reasons for that that I'll not get into. But even wonderful songs like Shout to the Lord uh, that lasted longer than most of them uh, are not going to continue to be around. We, you know, we just are, are cycling through music so fast. And the danger of that is that to be a healthy worshiper, we have to have down in our hearts and souls and minds a collection of sacred songs that are going to be with us all of our lives, that we sing when we're five years old, 
that we sing when we're 15 years old, that we sing when we're 25 and 35 and 45 and 55 years old, that we sing when we're dying. We all need a collection of sacred songs that, uh, that we can sing when we're walking around the patio uh, or when we're on the greenway. My uh, granddaughter right now is facing a hard decision about college. And so I actually grabbed the hymn book and I said, I'm going to give you this hymn book. And if you will look here, these are hymns of guidance. And I said, Chloe, I can't tell you how often in my life I haven't known what to do. And I've walked around the pool or I've walked around the backyard and I've just said, Savior, like a shepherd, lead me much I need thy tender care. And I said, you can take these hymns and pray them and say, Lord, lead me, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And these will be the most powerful prayers, the only prayers you'll need right now. Mm. And the Lord will show you what to do. So I want to really advocate um, the preservation um, of the hymns. And in my opinion, every church ought to include one or two great classic hymns in every worship service so that they're not lost. We're in danger of becoming the first uh, generation since the Reformation to lose uh, all of the heritage of music that, that we've gained throughout um, the Christian centuries. And so yes. when it comes to praising God, there's so many different ways of doing it. But with me, it almost always sooner or later includes a great hymn of the faith. I love that. And everything that you're saying rings true about they, we've sung them as children. You know, I'm singing them as a young adult. And when you talked about having big decision making, you know, big decisions, and I thought of, you know, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, how I trust him over and over. Um, you know, or what a friend we have in Jesus, you know, th- songs like that, that you just immediately can run to and think, oh, this is a this is a way to pour out my heart to God is by singing these words that have been carried through centuries. That's that's beautiful. I think that is it is good. But if we don't teach them to our children and keep singing them some uh, to our church to, in our churches now, you know, it's not the older people that need these. I don't you know, it frustrates me when we relegate them singing to the senior adults, and we say, well, they can have their service and sing their hymns. They already know them. It's the children and young people who need to be singing all of these. I tell people um, when I'm speaking on this uh, that the older people badly need to sing the newest songs, and the younger people very badly need to sing the classic hymns. Oh, I I can see where you're coming from with that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I th- I think that's beautiful. What a great reminder. I'm so glad you said that. That's wonderful. Well, um, Pastor Morgan, it has just been a joy and a delight talking with you. I've, I've learned so much from this conversation, and I know this will bless the listeners. So again, I just thank you for taking the time out of your day to encourage us and, um, and you know, lean into the Lord during this time. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for letting me uh, be with you during this time. It's a joy, and the Lord bless you, Rachel. Thank you. What an incredible man. Oh, my goodness. I'm telling you, if you have not read The Red Sea Rules, you better go to Amazon, go to your local bookstore, 
get that now, you will not be disappointed. As always, thank you for listening to the podcast. It means the world to me. If you like what you hear and would like to support what I'm doing, please follow me on Facebook at Rachel Sinclair Writes, on Instagram and Twitter at one, like the digit, Rachel Sinclair. And most of all, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give it a rating, hopefully five stars if that's how you feel. Thank you guys so much. I will talk to you next time.